Now let's uh, turn for our text to the words that we looked at in the morning. And that takes us back to chapter 3 of Exodus. <coughs> and verse 10. Where God says to Moses, Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And uh, these words, of course, govern the chapter that we're looking at tonight as well, uh, chapter 4. And uh, in the morning we began looking at Moses' reasons for objecting to God's call, or to put it another way, Moses' reasons for refusing or wanting to refuse what God was commanding him to do. Now it sounds a very arrogant thing, and it is an arrogant thing to be refusing whatever God calls or commands us to do. And of course, as well as being arrogant, it is a dangerous thing to do. God was patient with Moses here. Indeed, it's quite ironic in a way that the one who feels that he can't argue his case and can't appear before Pharaoh and can't appear before Israel is not afraid to argue with God and presents several objections before him, before a a burning, fiery bush. Uh, But that's the way we are. We are sometimes more bold uh, with God than we are with people in that respect. But we have in the passage the reasons for not doing what God is commanding you to do. You may know yourself something that the Lord is commanding you to do and it may be as basic, maybe as fundamental as committing your soul to him. And you've got reasons and objections and you're not tired of listing them out before God. Well, Moses has four reasons for not doing what God is calling him to do. The first two we saw this morning, the first of them was just a sense of personal inadequacy, uh, a general sense of personal inadequacy. And we saw how there was no harm in feeling that. In fact, it was a good thing to feel it. Forty years earlier, when he was ready to deliver Israel, he had no sense of personal inadequacy as such, or little of it, but now he has it, and that's a good thing. God can do much with people who feel that they can't do anything themselves. And so God counters that by just assuring him that he himself will be with him. But that's not enough for Moses. He raises a second objection And that is a fear of rejection. And it's not so much a fear of being rejected or resisted by Pharaoh, but a fear of being rejected by the church itself. Now, the church had rejected him already 40 years earlier, so he's saying essentially, well, what's going to be new or what's going to be different? For one thing, he said, if they ask, if I have a particular knowledge of you or a particular understanding of your nature and of your work, then what am I to say to them? How, how can I show them that 
you have equipped me to do such a task. And God counters that by immediately giving him an insight into the meaning of the name Jehovah, a name that was known by the patriarchs but not understood. God explains its meaning. I am that I am. And he ties that wonderful name into the vision or the reality of the burning bush. And Moses is to preach essentially on that to the children of Israel. The nature of the self-existent God, uh, the self-sustaining God, the independent God, and his connection to his own people. And that will convince Israel that Moses has been sent of God. So that's that objection dealt with. They will realize that you are well taught by me. Now again Moses isn't finished with that. And this takes us particularly to what we want to look at tonight. He has a third objection. It's connected with this fear of rejection and it essentially runs like this. Very well, they, they may be impressed, if I can use that word, with what I have to say regarding the meaning of your name and the, the burning bush and all that that conveys. But how will they believe that I ever really saw such a vision? What if they say to me, well, you speak about being on the backside of the desert and being on Mount Sinai and seeing a bush there that was burning but not consuming? How do do we know any of that's true? You come to us with an explanation of what God's name means and may sound plausible, but is it just inventiveness on your part? How do we know there's been a vision at all? And in some respects, that's a reasonable enough question to ask. And I'm giving as much rope to Israel as I can all the way through this because they need to know in their own miserable condition, they need to know that the one who's coming to help them is real. Of course, that's true concerning the Lord Jesus Christ himself too. When he came with his ministry to fulfill, it was quite right of the people to ask, well, who is this man? What does he speak and what are his credentials? The real problem was that the Lord gave his credentials and authenticated his message with his signs, but the people still did not believe. That was the problem there. So Israel was quite within their rights to say, well, did you ever see such a thing really? God's word tells us that a prophet should be able to authenticate his message with miracle and with sign. Now, of course, there are no prophets of that kind in the church today. There weren't meant to be. Since the canon of Scripture was closed in AD 67, the age of the prophets came to an end. When God said that his own prophets and apostles would be authenticated by being able, for example, to pick up serpents and not being bitten by them, by being able to drink poison and not being hurt by it, that wasn't Christ saying that that would be true of all ministers and all preachers of the world to the end of time. That's a foolish belief. 
And you do see certain sects and groups of people who, who do try and do such things, and unsurprisingly, a lot of them end up dead. Because that promise was not for the church in all the ages. It was to authenticate the people who were writing scripture. Once scripture is written, that is our authority. I don't stand before you tonight as a prophet bringing a new revelation. If I was really to be that, I should be able to authenticate it with miracles and signs and wonders. All that we have now is appointed and anointed teachers of the word of God who are sent to expound the truth. The miracles are finished. They are done. The word of God is itself the sign. As we saw just a couple of Sabbaths ago, as John said, closing his gospel, he says, These signs now have all been written that you might believe. So that's your sign. Sometimes you may ask for a sign from heaven. Well, the sign that you want is in the Bible itself. They're all recorded and written that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. But in Moses' day, it was fair enough to say, you claim to have a special message from God, a new word. Well, show us that that's true. And that explains why God is not angry here. Instead, God gives Moses three signs that he is to perform in the presence of the children of Israel. Signs, remember. Remember what we said about signs just a few weeks ago. Signs are signposts. Um, miracles, wonders, and signs. Three words describing the same thing. Extraordinary events. But the name signs tells us that they are all teaching events. Signposts. So when Moses is to perform these signs for the children of Israel, they are not simply wonders. They're not simply designed to produce the response, oh, what an amazing thing you can do. They are actually visual aids. They are teaching devices. They are communicating something about God and about themselves, or if you like, God and ourselves. Things that we need to know about God and us. That's why it says in verse 8 here, or God says to Moses, just after he's given in the second sign, he says in verse 8, Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign. Do you notice that? It doesn't say that if they don't heed the first sign, but if they don't heed the message of the first sign, they may believe the message of the latter sign, or the second sign. So again, that is really telling us that these signs, which Moses did, were signs that he was then to expound, and to preach, and to explain, because... That's what signs are there for. And Christ's miracles were like that. Let me just take the best known because it's the only one that's recorded in all four Gospels. And that's the feeding of the 5,000. 
from five loaves and two fish. That was a sign. How do we know it's a sign? Because Christ immediately begins to preach on it. He begins to preach on himself as the bread of life, which was given from heaven in order to feed our spiritually hungry souls. The message explains the sign. The sign confirms the message. Well, the same is true here. So it's not just the case that Moses would preach about the burning bush and the connection between the burning bush and the name of God. He would then, as the next step, begin to perform these signs one by one and preach on their significance. First the rod, and then the leprosy, and then, if need be, the water spilt on the ground and becoming blood. Well then, if that's what the signs are there for, the question is, what then do they teach? What do they mean? Well, I think, friends, it's fair to say that the first sign tells us something and tells Israel or the church tells them something about the tyranny of Satan. The second sign tells them something about the tyranny of sin. And the third sign tells them simply about the judgment of God. Now let's take these three in turn. First of all, the tyranny of Satan. Now Moses is commanded to take the rod in his hand. Now from this point onwards, this rod is going to become a symbol of divine authority. It's just been an ordinary shepherd's rod for 40 years. But from this point onwards, and Moses is going to take this rod with him, and he's going to take it into Egypt, and every time he performs a miracle, or God performs a miracle through him, it is done with the rod raised as a symbol of God's authority. That's why from this point onwards, it's not really called Moses' rod, but the rod of God. For example, if you go down to verse 17 here, just at the close of this encounter, at the burning bush, God says to Moses in verse 17, And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. And then go down to verse 20. Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And from this point onwards it comes to be known as that the rod of God. For example, uh, when um, Moses was... Uh, praying for Israelite victory a short while afterwards against the Amalekites God told him to raise the rod and uh, to raise it up high um, chapter 16 and chapter 17 and verse 7 he told him to lift the rod the rod of God in his hand chapter 17 and verse 9 so it's a symbol of of God's authority. Now, 
he's to cast this rod down and it becomes a serpent simply by the power of God but why a serpent? well when God gave authority to man upon the earth he delegates it there is a, a civil authority that's invested in the government that there's a domestic authority that is invested in a husband there is an ecclesiastical authority that is invested in an eldership but the sad thing is that very often this authority is taken by man and abused or it's taken by Satan and abused he sees to it that governments whether church governments or civil governments take the authority of God and they abuse it as we see happening in this country unrighteous law after unrighteous law is being enacted all the time anti-God anti-Christian legislation it is serpentine legislation that is being enacted in our kingdom and of course that is supremely true in Egypt which is a type in the Old Testament of Satan's kingdom and the power of darkness where Israel sadly were in bondage and you'll remember on the first occasion we were looking at all this I drew your attention to the fact that the serpent was such a was interwoven into the very regalia of the Pharaoh. His, his scepter was actually in the form of a serpent. The top of it was the head of a cobra and the S of the serpent was on his headdress. That is a way of saying or that functions as a symbol to us that Satan is ruling in this kingdom. The God of this world, the prince of the power of the air is the one who is ruling in Egypt. Now, of course, we know that overall that the sovereignty is God's, but it's Satan's rule that is acknowledged. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan is necessarily worshipped. It would be foolish of us to think that satanic rule meant that Satan was worshipped. All it means is that the same philosophy is followed as Satan adheres to. Lying, cheating, and anti-Christianity. Murder, theft, rape, all these things, whenever they appear, indicate anti Christianity, anti God, and these things prevail in Egypt. And of course, they are destroying the Lord's people. They are subject, they are under tyranny, and they are in misery. No. God tells Moses to grab this serpent by the tail which is not the best place to grab a serpent to be quite honest as far as I know and as far as I've been able to read up uh, that's not where you hold a serpent if you're going to hold it at all which is dodgy in itself particularly if it's venomous as this one obviously was you, you hold it somewhere near its neck so that it can't get at you but God says take it by the tail do the dangerous thing do, do the riskiest thing and as I drew attention to in the reading the Hebrew word is decisive God says seize it decisively, boldly courageously get a hold of it 
the Hebrew word for what Moses did is actually fairly tentative. But that doesn't matter so much. Sometimes it's not the weakness with which we do a thing that matters, it's whether we do it at all. Weak faith is better than no faith, far better than no faith. There are times when God rebukes weak faith. There are times when God says, it's good that it's there. The poor man who said to to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, is a man that Jesus was commended. It's a man that was commended by Jesus. So Moses, thankfully, had the resolve and the courage at the command of God to take this serpent by the tail. And of course, when he does, it reverts into a rod. And the symbolism is clean. The symbolism is just telling us that the power of God is greater than the power of the serpent. The authority of God is an authority that is over the power of the serpent. And God's people need to remember that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We need to remember that for a start. The one who dwells within us is greater than the one who holds sway in the world. We need to remember that faith expels unbelief. We need to remember that. We need to remember that light actually expels darkness. It has that power of expelling darkness. We need to remember that with God on our side, the devils are subject to us. And we need to remember that God will bruise Satan under our feet shortly. All these are biblical expressions. And they're truths that we are prone to. To forget. Why is it that Israel is lying so low in Egyptian bondage? Because of sin and because of backsliding. And the church of God is under the tyranny of unbelief and of unrighteousness and chaos. And by the way, the more God is forgotten in our own land, the more chaotic our land will get. You sometimes hear things and you just wonder well what is next what is next already we are being asked to believe the impossible and people have difficulty affirming the obvious it's incredible it reminds us of what Chesterton said a long time ago he says when people cease to believe in God they will actually believe anything so true Friends, it ought not to be so that the devil's rule is over the legal system. It ought not to be so that the devil's rule is in our education system and over our education system. It ought not to be the case that all our children are being schooled in rationalism and humanism and coming out as unbelievers at the age of 18. It ought not to be so that the people who sit in our parliaments passing our laws are people who don't know about God and don't care about God. These things ought not to be so. But yet our behaviour is as though it's either normal or what can we do about it? Or as the 
People of Judah said to Samson long ago, I drew your attention to it, when Samson was trying to stir up the people to overthrow the Philistines, God's people said, hey, the Philistines are in charge here. Is that our attitude? You try setting up a Christian school anywhere in Scotland. It's the church that will give you grief before the government does. Reminds me of... um, when Rosaria Butterfield, who used to be a professor of queer studies, uh, before she was uh, converted, before she was a lesbian, and she was converted, she married an RP minister in America. Uh, I heard of how she was going to give a, a lecture in a university in Michigan, and just at the last, at the last moment, her lecture was plugged. It was pulled, it was cancelled. And and your first thought would be, oh well, that's the power of the authorities. No, it's actually complaints from the local church. That's what you have, you see. You've got people who are saying, please leave us in bondage in Egypt here. It's far better than anything else. Now, God is going to give Moses a sign that essentially says to the church, the authority of the devil needs to end. The power of the devil needs to end, I should say, because he has no authority. He has no real, genuine authority. Take him by the tail. Take him head on his citadels and his strongholds and watch the authority of God watch him working with the rod again as long as you lie under him the devil will rule over you that can be true in your personal life too Uh, you may be and I may be too sometimes too content with some kind of sway that the devil has in our lives some kind of area where he has some kind of control and sometimes you can tell that it's there by the way that you resist it being pointed out to you. It's the way sometimes people respond when you say to them, look, that social media has uh, far too much of a grip on you. And they rise and say, it doesn't. Just like the person who's enslaved with drink when you say to him, well, do you think you might have... No, I don't. I'm in complete control of this. Whereas in reality, the devil's in complete control over it. You'll notice here that when the rod becomes a serpent, Moses flees from it. That's his first response. I suppose that reminds us of the fact that Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. In his weakness, he fled from the face of Pharaoh. That's what we all do. And at one level, yes, we flee temptation and we flee the devil in one way, but when it comes to a fight, we've we've got to be careful in what sense and what way we flee from him because there's a way in which we flee there's another way in which we stand up to him and take him head on or take him by the tail whichever way you want to put it so not only would Moses perform that miracle he would tell them the importance of shaking loose from satanic control and asserting God's sovereignty amongst themselves as a proud Israelite people and as the people of God upon the earth. Stand up on your two feet as the people of God, the people that he wants you to be. The second message is related to it, but distinct. It has to do with the tyranny of sin in their personal lives. And that's not so much to do with the sway of Satan socially, it's to do with the power of Satan inside 
and sin's the greatest enemy. It's no wonder it's a miracle involving leprosy. Leprosy here represents sin. Now I'm conscious that it's not officially a symbol of sin yet in the Bible. That will only happen later when Moses gives the people the law on Mount Sinai. There it will be made plain that a leper and leprosy will function as a time of sin. But friends, I, I would think that it always did function like that, even before the law confirmed it. Because many a time people would have been tempted to use this particular disease as a symbol of sin itself. Because of its ugliness, for one thing, a person consumed and increasingly consumed by leprosy was a difficult thing to look at. Because sin is ugly. And whether or not you see its ugliness or I see its ugliness, God sees its ugliness. When, when he's drawing us to himself, we begin to see the ugliness of it, but it's always ugly to him. And that little sin that sometimes is beautiful to you is ugly in the sight of God. And God uses leprosy to convey that. It is ugly in my sight. As well as ugly, leprosy was rotten and produced rottenness. It was the corrosion of the face and of the limbs and ultimately of the body. And with it there was a foul smell of decay. Again God's way of saying that it is corroding you, it's destroying your soul, so that your soul becomes in itself a, an ugly and corroded thing. Every grace and every beauty, every kindness, everything that was light and noble is gone. And once sin has finished with us and cast us into a lost eternity, all that's left is hate, malice, vengefulness, bitterness, resentment, anger, anything else, any other vice, it's there, no virtue. In this world where God still restrains us and where none of us are as bad as we could be and none of us are as bad as we're going to be, it becomes sometimes difficult to imagine what sin would be like unchecked and unrestrained. Now and again you get a glimpse of it. And sometimes I think these glimpses are there to remind us of the possible. And not just to remind us of the possible, but to remind us of the real, the actual. You walk through Auschwitz and Many a person who's walked through Auschwitz will tell you that they feel they've walked through hell on earth. They walked through a place where there was just brutality and unkindness left. My question to you is very obvious. My question to you who perhaps finds it difficult to envisage a hell, if you can envisage a hell upon the earth, why shouldn't there be one? In other words, it's not that fantastic a thought. 
to think of a place where there's no kindness and no grace left because we sometimes touch it on the earth a reminder to us that that's a godless world that's what you make for yourself that's what I make for myself if I persist in a life without God ugly, rotten and of course incurable nothing could be done for the leper once the leper was seen as a leper that's it excommunication from the camp to a place of uncleanness why? because there was only one outcome death the soul that sinneth it shall die not it might die not even in 99 cases out of 100 it's death it's in 100 out of 100 the soul that sinneth it shall die right leprosy here is a symbol of sin but what's the role of the bosom and of the hand well I want you to notice the order you'll notice that the hand doesn't first become leprous God tells him instead to put his hand to his chest and once he takes his hand from his chest his chest is leprous as though the chest is the problem and then he tells him to put his hand back to his chest to take it out again and his hand is clean and thus far the message is plain the order is heart to hand for uncleanness and heart to hand for cleanness that is telling us first that the source of the leprosy is not in what you do the source of your leprosy lies deeper than that lies beyond your reach it's at the very fountain and origin of your life our human nature from which you as an individual were made from your original sperm and egg is contaminated there is only one human nature available in the world you've got it so have I and it's contaminated at source what a problem that is What a problem that is. It's not as though by some freak of nature or super nature you've inherited a human nature that isn't flawed. No, you've got it. Born with it. We've got it. The problem is in the heart. As Jesus said, if the tree's bad, the fruit's bad. If the tree's good, the fruit's good. Out of an evil heart, proceeds evil actions and evil speech an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things a good man of course from the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things so an evil heart you've got that I've got that what can you do about it when you take your hand out from your bosom it's the same it means that what you do your legs too you could multiply the figure all of you is leprous your tongue is leprous everything is leprous because your heart is leprous and what can be done about that you're dying you're corroding you're getting uglier before God day by day even if you think you're getting more beautiful yourself and as the Bible says who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing or can a leper change his spots no But as we saw last week, something can be done about it. 
as Christ told Nicodemus, there can be a change. There can be a change to your hands and to your feet and to your tongue if fundamentally there is a change first in your heart. Christianity is all about the heart. It's all about inside out, not about outside in. The fact is that God can change that heart. He can give a new birth and a new life. And once that happens and the hands come out, everything's changed. The whole person is changed. The person is renewed in the image of God. New thoughts, new desires, a longing for holiness and for Christ-likeness. Why? Because God changed the heart. And only God can change the heart. Now the point is that Moses is not just to perform this miracle to them. No, it's a miracle. It's a wonder. There he goes, he does this and he does that and it's rotten. And he does that and he does that and it's clean. But he then explains it. And it's really in a way, what occurred to me was that it's, it's quite like what God said to Ezekiel when Ezekiel was preaching to a backslidden church. That was, that was in a way full of, of dead people or people who needed renewed God just simply began to tell them what could happen to them and what he would do for them I he says will give you a new heart now here they are lying moribund many of them dead in Babylon spiritually dead and he says I'll take you I'll gather you I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and I will make you to walk in my statutes. And then he says, you'll remember your evil ways. You'll remember your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Notice the order. I'll bring you to life first and then you'll hate what you are and what you were. We can't just... We can't just do all that. We can't self-repent. We can't just begin to like things we don't like. You can... You can give a piece of bacon to a horse for 20 years. He's never going to eat it because he's got no interest in it. But the fact of the matter is that when God does all that, then we will hate sin. Then we will love holiness. We will remember our evil ways and we will loathe ourselves. And God says, I don't do this for your sake. Of course, for his own sake. So be ashamed. And confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. And just a little later on, when he tells Ezekiel to preach to dry bones, and and how's that for a waste of time? Preaching to dry bones. God says to him, prophesy to them, say to them, dry bones, listen to the word. I will make breath enter you, and you will live. He's talking to the dead here. I will put breath in you and you will live. I'll put sinews on you and flesh on you. I'll cover you with skin and I'll put breath in you. And then you shall live. 
That's what God said to them. And then we're told that as he prophesied, the bones came together. Eventually, they breathed and they stood as an army before God. So Moses is effectively going to say to the people, um, I've told you that you don't need to lie under the power of Satan anymore as a people. You can be free. Free to live under God's rule and God's law, which is far more gracious than man's. And you say, but look at us. Perhaps even the best of them would say, yes, yes, but look at where we are and where we've got ourselves. Look how miserable and low our condition is. And Moses says, well, start with your own heart. All of you. Can I say that to yourselves tonight? Start with your own heart. And realize what God can do in your own life. He can deal with that sin that's dictating your hands and your feet. And he can renew or even create from nothing that principle of holiness and change your life. And perhaps in the very hearing of that, it will begin. Which is what happened when Ezekiel preached it. In the preaching of the new birth, there was new births. He wasn't preaching to the newly born, but he was preaching the new birth. And lo and behold, souls were born. And when we declare to the glory of God what God can do for you and for me and for our congregations, well then may God do it for you and for me and for our congregations. The power to renew and to renovate and to make holy. Is it not far more exciting to think of God's power at loose in your life than the devil's power? Sitting in bondage when we ought to be free. There's a third sign. And the third sign is a little different. In verse 8, God says, if they don't believe you or listen to the message of the first sign, they may believe the message of the latter sign. And in verse 9, it shall be, if they don't believe these two signs or listen to your voice. Now, this sounds like a, a rejection. You shall take water from the river and pour it out on the dry land. And the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Now, I can't uh, honestly be dogmatic on this point. I, I can't say that this is what the scripture means here because I can only just be tentative. It's only what I, I think myself. So I'm, I'm just going to say that to you. And I don't like to linger long on what I just think myself. But I do feel that this sign is different because I understand it to be a sign of judgment on their unbelief if they persist in it. There's something different in the tone. They don't believe the signs and your voice. If they, if they hear what you've got to say and they see the two signs that you perform in the mouth of two witnesses, as it were, then perform this sign, which is essentially saying that I will take your blessings and I will turn them into a curse. Everyone's life 
in Egypt revolved around the Nile. Take the life, take the Nile out of Egypt, and it's the Sahara. It's as simple as that. But this water was just to be poured out, and it would become blood, i.e. judgment. That's God's way of saying, this situation can't go on. You either keep falling back to eventual destruction, or else you arrest your, your, your declension and you come back to the Lord. I wonder if God is saying that to any of ourselves. We can't keep going back. We can't keep cooling and being lukewarm. We've got to change and move forward. Or God will turn our blessings into cursings. Um, my time's gone, but I think I can just bring to an end, really, what I've got to say. Um, you would think with all that, Moses has enough equipment to go to, to Egypt. There's one more thing that he's got to say. He goes back to his sense of inadequacy and he focuses on his ability to speak or lack of in verse 10. Oh my Lord, he says, I'm not eloquent. Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. In the first 40 years of my life, I wasn't really eloquent. In the last 40, I'm not particularly eloquent either. But I am slow, or as the Hebrew says, I am heavy in my speech and I am heavy in my tongue. Now that's Moses' assessment of himself. He's probably hard on himself. Like I say, 40 years in the wilderness is meant to strip away his sense of self-sufficiency and maybe he, he does feel this. I think after being 40 years in the Egyptian court, he was probably pretty proficient at speaking. One of the things they taught you very well in the court of Pharaoh was how to speak and how to negotiate, how to be a representative and how to be an ambassador. So he's probably been quite hard on himself. But it's amazing, you know, when you come to be really aware of your own inadequacy, you're inadequate in everything without God, and rightly so. When God sent Isaiah to preach, he was immediately conscious of his lips. My lips. My lips are unclean, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. God's response, I made your mouth, Moses. Don't worry about it. I'm sending you. I've promised you I'll be with you. I'll teach you what to say, and I'll teach you how to say it. That's essentially what he says in verse 12. Go, I'll be with your mouth and I'll teach you what you shall say. In other words, I'll give you the material and I'll give you the ability to put it across. Just trust me. I'll do it. Now Moses probably was familiar with a way of speaking in courtly circles and he thought, well, I've got to speak like that. God says, don't speak like that. Use simplicity of speech. Be clear in your expressions, Moses. Be direct in your manner. Be earnest and be urgent. Pharaoh doesn't want essays. The people of God don't want essays. They want you to speak from your heart clearly and directly from God. And that's that, except it's not. Because Moses fires his last shot, which is the most surprising of all. He basically, after all that, says, please just send somebody else. That's what he says in verse 13. Send by the hand of whomever else you wish to send. Anybody. <laughs> Anybody but me. Now it's an amazing thing because 
when Moses first came near the burning bush, uh, God said to him, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Um, Hebrew scholars will tell you that that expression, here I am, is not simply identifying a location or where he is, but actually communicating a willingness of some kind. It's like saying, at your service. (laughs) But lo and behold, he's not so much at the service at all. He ends up by saying, here am I, send Aaron, or send somebody else. And this time God is angry. Rightly so. Rightly so. Maybe God has been angry with you, or with me, for not doing what you know fine well he's calling you to do. He's angry about it. He's patient. God is patient. But he is angry. And sad to say, and I'm leaving you with this, and it's a solemn thing to leave you with, but Moses actually misses out on a special blessing that God had for him. The reason for that is that Aaron, his brother, unknown to Moses, is actually making his way from Egypt out to the Sinaitic wilderness to meet Moses. Aaron is three years older. Aaron possibly doesn't know why, but he's been told by God to go to this wilderness. I don't even know if he's coming, if he knows. Um, yes, he does know that he's going to meet Moses. Um, but what really matters is what God now says will happen. Because what God says will happen now is this, Moses says, I will put what needs to be said into your mouth. But instead of you telling the people and you telling Pharaoh, you've actually got to pass it on to Aaron. And Aaron will be the communicator between me and the people and between me and Pharaoh and not you. And the honour and dignity that God meant for Moses to have to be the one who directly communicated to the people of God and to Pharaoh was taken away from him. And it was given instead to Aaron. Now that seems very shocking. In verse 15, you shall speak to him, put the words, in other words, the words I give you in his mouth, I'll be with your mouth when you tell him, and I will be with his mouth when he tells the people. Verse 16, so he shall be your spokesman to the people. Now you think, well, was that actually carried through? This is the case later on when we see Moses dealing with Pharaoh, that it's actually Aaron who's doing the communication. Well, go down to verse 29 of the chapter. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. Go forward actually to chapter 7 for a second. This is when they're in Egypt, in the middle of their confrontations with Pharaoh. Chapter 7 and verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. Now I don't know uh, how that makes you feel, but I'll tell you in closing that 
the feeling that it produces in me over and above all others is sadness. Sadness. That someone missed out on what God had for them because of persistent unbelief or a persistent unwillingness just to take God at his word. They missed a blessing. Now, I wouldn't want you to miss a blessing or as they used to say it, to miss God's best. I, I wouldn't want to do that either myself. Maybe we've all done it at some points. Putting something by ourselves. There are some things in life that God will make us do one way or another. There are other things that he just sometimes says, right, I'm putting you over there because I'm using this person to do it. Because you didn't believe. Don't let that be you. Don't let it be me. Moses is ready to go. It's strange, by the way, how he's ready to go once he has Aaron's support. Um, why wasn't God's support not enough for him? Strange how we are with all these things. Or at least he looks as though he's ready to go, but there's still actually a problem that God has to deal with. We'll look at that next time. Let us pray. <coughs> O Lord, teach us that the way of obedience is best and that obedience begins with an entrance into the kingdom, the first step in the walk of faith and Lord, enable us even tonight to take it. It is your first command upon us to enter into the straight gate and to embrace the Saviour as the way and the truth and the life and whatever evasions we put up and whatever objections there may be Lord we pray that you would strike them all down and that we might immediately respond in obedience and faith bless our meditation upon your precious truth and may it work powerfully in our lives that Satan would not take away the seed of even this word before it has its opportunity to take root in the heart. Oh, help us to meditate upon it and not to let it go. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 81. I realise that it's very warm and I don't know, it's a habit I can't shake off but I've been very long and I apologise for keeping you in the, in the heat. I hope the fan has been of some help. But Psalm 81 In verse 10 of course the Lord says well he tells his people to open their mouths and that he will satisfy them. But in verse 11, the people were not attentive to that. So God says that I delivered them to the lust of their own hearts and then in their own counsels they wandered. We'll sing the last, I gave the presenter last quote, and we'll just sing the last three. Oh, that my people had me heard. Israel, my ways had chosen. I had their enemies soon subdued. 
my hand turned on their foes. In other words, instead of on themselves in chastisement, I'd have turned my hand on their foes. The haters of the Lord to him submission would have feigned. And as for them, my people, their time should forever more remain. He should or he would have also fed them with the finest of the wheat, of honey from the rock thy fill, I should or I would have made thee eat. The last three stanzas will stand to sing them. <coughs> Oh, that my people